I told you last week, those of you who were here, as we concluded Ruth, that if I had to pick one overarching, arcing, I don't know which is the right way to say it, one overarching, I like arcing, anyway, point to take from the book, I would take this one. God isn't done working. Um, We took a long look at the events that led up to Ruth giving birth. So it was four chapters. We spent four weeks working through the book of Ruth. And I think one of the things that we gathered is that it's actually completely reasonable for us in our humanity from time to time to conclude that hope is lost. That's totally reasonable. Life is not easy. Um, And and part of the reason that I think it's reasonable for us to conclude that that hope is lost or that God is done working is because we can't see what he's doing. We can't see the totality of what God is up to at any given point in time. Um, And then the the sin comes in, I think, when, when we wrongly conclude that because we can't see what he's doing, we assume that he's doing nothing. Uh, whether it's Abraham and Sarah reaching their 80s and 90s without a child, or if it's an altar, a knife, and the miraculous preservation of a son about to be offered on Mount Moriah, if it's Joseph in prison because Potiphar's wife is a liar, Slavery in Egypt because a new pharaoh comes along who doesn't remember Joseph or anything that he did for Egypt. Slavery made worse because Moses comes along and warns Pharaoh that he needs to let the people go. So Pharaoh reacts by increasing the burden of slavery. Or that moment when you're standing at the edge of the Red Sea and Egypt's chariots are bearing down on you. It's not easy to see what God is doing. Wandering for 40 years in the wilderness because you had to listen to people who just ransacked Egypt and walked across the Red Sea on dry land, grumbling about God not providing and wanting to go back. It's hard to see what God's doing in that moment. Being told, if you're Moses, you won't be allowed to enter the promised land because you lost your temper with said whining, grumbling people. Well, moms and dads... We've all done it, right? It's, a, it's not on the same scale, but it's the same thing. Finally reaching the promised land and discovering that its inhabitants are giants and that you are like grasshoppers in their sight. Finally entering the promised land, but failing to really take it because nobody wants to finish the job. And then spending four centuries in the resulting horror show because virtually no progress is made to take the land once they're in it. So one judge after another rises up. Some of them are decent, some of them are not. Eventually you get a handsome, tall, seemingly gallant king in Saul, but then you discover he doesn't worry too much about obeying God either. He gets replaced by David, who's a much better king. He actually cares for the downtrodden and the destitute. But then he starts sleeping around and murdering the husband of a lover, 
utterly failing to raise his own kids, being that king, seeing him recover his throne, eventually die and be replaced by his son who starts out with wisdom and builds up the temple, but ultimately plunges headlong into idolatry, which leads to another 400 years of Israel slowly decaying into irrelevance. The beautiful temple, the dwelling place of God's glory being ransacked and destroyed. Like, what do you think in that moment? The arrival of prophets and men, prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, men who fear God, rebuilding all that was lost just for the people to repeat the same apostasy after those guys are dead and gone. The temple is rebuilt, but according to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, 400 years before Christ, wives are being abused, nobody is tithing, and nobody is honoring God or obeying him. Oh, let me interject something because it's Easter and there are visitors here. Last week at small group, we covered the subject of giving at church. Um, my position is that tithing is an Old Testament mandate, which was done away when Jesus accomplished and fulfilled all that was commanded in the law. But we are still free to give offerings. I'm not here for your money, and I'm glad that you're here. And I hope you keep your, your wallet in your pocket. Anyway, in Micah's time, or Malachi's time, rather, nobody was tithing. And it was a big deal then because that was part of the prescribed act of worship. You gave a tenth of all that you had. So what happens after Malachi? Well, God is silent. 400 years before Christ comes, God falls silent. So in 333 BC, Israel falls to the Greeks. Uh, if you studied history at all, you probably know more about that than, than what the Bible indicates because the Bible doesn't say anything about it because God is silent. In 323, she falls into the hands of the Egyptians. The Bible doesn't say anything about that because God is silent. We know these things from history. In 204 BC, Antiochus of Syria captures Israel and persecution of the priesthood begins in earnest. The, the descendants of Levi are sold into slavery. In 171 BC, Epiphanes desecrates the Holy of Holies, which is where the glory of God supposedly dwelt in the temple. Syria and the Jews spend the next hundred years battling it out back and forth until Rome seizes control in 63 BC. Pompey waltzes into the Holy of Holies, desecrating it a second time. Caesar installs Antipater as the procurator of Judea. And this guy, Antipater, installs his sons as kings over Galilee and Judea. We finish a third 400-year span where this, this time God hasn't spoken, he hasn't said anything, and by all appearances, he is just indifferent to what's happening with the Jews. The whole story of the people of God, by the way, we just made it through most of the Old Testament. The whole story of the people of God is littered with moments where any reasonable person would look at what's happening and conclude that God is finished with them. In fact, they're not moments. We're talking about centuries where people could reasonably conclude that God is finished with them. When Herod hears about a new king being born to the Jews in Bethlehem, there are, there are two remaining sects of Jews. Okay? You've got 
the Sadducees, who were the liberal, licentious Jews who didn't believe anything but the first five books of the Old Testament, refused to believe in the resurrection, and don't think that God needs to have any role in governing Israel. And then on the other hand, you've got the Pharisees, who were the conservatives. Uh, These were the religious zealots. They team up with the scribes and write laws to the point where the cares and concerns of people are utterly ignored. You could not breathe without doing something wrong, which sounds eerily familiar to 2023, doesn't it? In the midst of this madness, a young lady named Mary is visited by an angel and told that she's going to carry the promised Messiah. Her fiancé, Joseph, hears a similar message from an angel, so he doesn't divorce her. Her baby is born in Bethlehem, far away from their home in Nazareth, in a stable probably in September when it's pretty cold at night. Herod sends his goon squad to murder every child under three years old, and it really happens. If you had a two-year-old in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, your child was killed. That's a hopeless moment for a mom or a dad. Amen? Yeah, that's horrible. That would make you think that God is done working or that he's angry with you. Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt, and any hope surrounding his birth probably dies out again. Thirty years later, Jesus begins his public ministry, and the greatest sermon ever preached happens on a hillside near Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee, the Sermon on the Mount, followed by people being healed of sicknesses. Withered limbs are restored. The blind are given sight. The deaf are given hearing. The people that can't speak are given the ability to speak. Paralyzed people are given back the full function of their bodies. Slaves to sin are freed from sin. The demon-possessed are released from bondage. The dead are raised back to life. That really happened. And the whole land is buzzing with excitement over this man, Jesus, and what he's doing to change everything. He refutes the Sadducees. He silences the scribes and Pharisees. He turns over tables in the temple, cleansing it of the unrighteous gain that's going on there. And for the first time in 400 years, it looks like God is on the move in Israel again. But the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes finally find something they can all agree on, and that's that Jesus is a problem and he needs to go. They contrive a plot wherein they engage the governing authorities to arrest Jesus for breaking the law. Uh, If I can interject, when laws are contrived in the culture, in the land, that are contrary to the laws that God has given, the moral laws that God has given, People who love God and want to obey God are going to find no shortage of opportunities to be in violation of the law of the land, right? Okay. I won't agree with our culture that young boys and girls should take hormones and mutilate their bodies because we've so suppressed the truth in our day and age that we're not even sure what we are anymore. 
I won't agree with our culture on that. I won't agree with our culture that biblical marriage is outdated and prudish and needs to be done away with. I won't agree with our culture that, that you know, the sexual ethic of the day is totally acceptable and I need to quit being such a prude and restricting my daughters from dating. I won't agree with our culture's morality either. I think letting a thief rob a store is insanity. It used to be everybody thought that, right? If you broke the law, you paid the price. Not anymore. Allowing people to riot and destroy personal and community property is insanity. We should not allow these things to happen. But neither will I furrow my brow and attack them for their insanity. I understand what's going on. They've been deceived. They've suppressed the truth to the point where their minds have fled them. They don't need my anger. They need to be told the truth. They need to be calmly, gently, patiently told whenever we have the opportunity, lovingly, here's what the truth is. Let me, help, let me explain what God says about this. And eventually they'll arrest us for that too. And we should rejoice when that happens. Not load up the 30-round the magazine and get, you know, ready to pay out retribution. There's going to come a moment where the time for rebellion will end and the time to rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer as Christ suffered under the hand of an oppressive government. Like, I hope we notice when that moment comes. These things aren't easy to figure out. And I don't pretend that I have. They arrest Jesus. They smack him around. They falsely accuse him. Then they turn him over to the Department of Homeland Security, run by a man named Pilate. Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus. So he has him flogged, just in case he actually did do something wrong. Understand that this practice resulted in death most of the time. Because a person can only have so much flesh ripped from their body by a shredded whip filled with glass and bits of iron before shock and blood loss kills them. So when you see Pilate had him flogged for no reason, understand that that was not some magnanimous righteous thing that Pilate did for Jesus. When the soldiers are done flogging him, they twist together a crown of thorns and jam it onto his head. Pilate thinks, eh, you know what, maybe another opinion is in order. So he sends Jesus to Herod, head of trust and safety and president of the fact-checking organization. Herod finds no entertainment in Jesus. So to mock him, he has a purple robe placed on his bleeding back and sends him back to Pilate. And the Bible says they became fast friends after that, Herod and Pilate. For prior to that, they'd been, they'd been at war with one another. Hoping that he has satisfied the diversity, equity, and inclusion brigade, Pilate presents Jesus to the Jews. He says publicly, I find no guilt in this man. They cry out for his death. The disciples, the 11 remaining Watch this happening from a distance, wondering, as would we, when is Jesus going to rise up and annihilate his enemies? The 11 are waiting with bated breath. Surely that's going to happen. His mother, Mary, probably now in her mid-50s, 
watches her baby endure this violence and wonders if she's out of her mind because you've got to think about this now. Didn't an angel tell her, behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high God. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. To it, there will be no end. And yet here he is, bleeding, mocked, scourged with a crown of thorns, and the people crying for him to be crucified. Did she hallucinate that moment when that angel spoke to her? I mean, that's what I would be thinking. If I were Mary, Peter, James, and John cover their mouths and wonder what actually happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Because as they remember it, Jesus was praying and they were like watching him pray because why wouldn't you? This is a man who knew how to pray. And suddenly his entire appearance was altered and he began to glow with a white light. And suddenly there were two more people on the mountain with them and it became clear that it was Elijah and Moses. And Peter says, hey, this is good. Why don't I build three tabernacles? One for you, Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And then suddenly there's a booming voice from heaven when the Father in glory says with an audible voice, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now, you were there on the mount, you saw that happen, you heard that happen, and now you're looking at the Son of God, in whom God is well pleased, with a crown of thorns, a bleeding back, being mocked and ridiculed by Roman soldiers and Jewish scribes alike. This doesn't make any sense. How is this happening? Jesus is forced to carry a cross out of the city to Golgotha, the place of the skull. He is stripped naked. I appreciate the propriety that those who still have Jesus on the cross are trying to show by having him wrapped in a loin covering. But he was not. He's stretched out and nailed to the cross, and a sign is affixed to the cross which says in three languages, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. One final mockery. And the cross is lifted up and it drops into the hole which has been prepared for its base. The soldiers below start throwing dice to figure out who's going to get Jesus' tunic. Mary, Jesus' mother, and John, the disciple, are standing nearby. What do they think? What do they think is happening in this moment? Jesus speaks his last three words. It is finished. And he bows his head and he yields up his spirit. The Savior is dead. Surely, now, God is finished working. We killed the Messiah. We killed his son. 
Except here's the thing. Abraham and Sarah had a son, right? Fifteen years later on Mount Moriah, God provided a sacrifice just before Abraham is forced to offer Isaac. 200 years later, Joseph becomes captain of the prison that he is in because Potiphar's wife is a liar. And eventually, from that prison, he interprets a dream for Pharaoh, predicting a famine, and as a result, becomes second in command only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt, the most glorious nation on the face of the planet at that time. 400 years later, when Moses confronts Pharaoh and orders him to free the slaves, yes, Pharaoh does increase the work. He does order that their slavery be compounded. But what does God do? God starts bringing plagues until Pharaoh finally relents and the people waltz out of Egypt with wagons filled with treasure and food from Egypt plundering that nation. While they're gathered at the Red Sea, panicking because here comes Pharaoh's army, God does something truly incredible. He parts the Red Sea and they walk through on dry land. When they start complaining in the wilderness, God does something incredible. He provides manna from heaven for them to eat. While Moses never enters the land. He does get told, you're not going to enter the land. God takes him up on Mount Nebo and shows him all of the promised land from edge to edge. And then Moses dies. And then God buries Moses himself. Now, I'm guessing here, that means God took Moses to the actual promised land, right? He didn't leave him unblessed. Joshua's spies discover the giants and they come back and only two of them are willing to take the land, but they do eventually steal their hearts and go in, don't they? And as a result, they bring an end to countless atrocities in Canaan. When somebody asks, and I've had this conversation a half dozen times, How do you think it's okay for a just and righteous God to order the slaughter of all those people who were in the promised land? The thing that comes to my mind is the fact that you're talking about the inhabitants, the natives in the land, who as part of their ritual worship offered up their children on an altar to a false god, Baal, Moloch, Ashtaroth. And the way that they offered up their infants to these false gods was there was a flame lit beneath the hands of this false god so that it would get red hot. And then the drummers in the cult worship would start beating the drums as hard as they could so that when mom and dad placed their infant on the burning hot hands of the false god, they wouldn't hear the screams of their own child. You bet I think a just and righteous god would send his people in to bring an end to that. What's he going to do to our nation? We've decided... Six to four among people in the United States of America. Abortion's a good thing to do. What's he going to do to our nation? Because he's not done working. 
The fourth century horror show covered by the book of Judges includes some striking men and women who rise up to serve the purpose of God in a wicked generation. King Saul was a disaster. Amen. But David was a giant improvement. He wasn't perfect, but he was a giant improvement. And the next four-century horror show covered by First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, there are many times when the people come to their senses and periods of prosperity and blessing result because God wasn't done working in all these moments. Hope was not lost. God was faithful to his promises. He preserved a remnant in every generation. And when we see Mary pregnant, we see that faithfulness of God more faithfully displayed than ever before. Through the whole ministry of Jesus while he was on earth, we see God's loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness, and his unwavering goodness till we come to this moment right here. He bows his head. He gives up his spirit. And the Bible says the sun was blotted out. The land is covered in darkness. The earth begins to tremble. And the people start to shuffle nervously. Back in the temple, there's a curtain hung between the holy place and the holy of holies where God had said in Moses' time, the Shekinah glory of God would dwell in the holy of holies. A beautiful, heavy, special curtain was created to put between the holy of holies and the holy place so that nobody had to die because if you went into the holy of holies, it would kill you. Jesus bows his head, gives up his spirit, the sun's blotted out, the earth begins to shake. And back in the temple, that veil is torn in two, signaling that the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and man can dwell in unity together. Tombs are opened and many bodies of saints who had died were raised. They walked out of their tombs and into the cities, appearing to many. That's in Matthew. At evening, a wealthy man named Joseph, a disciple of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ. Pilate orders that the body be given to Joseph. He takes the body, he wraps it in a clean linen burial shroud, and he lays Jesus in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And then he rolls a giant stone over the entrance and goes away. And the Bible says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, probably his mother, were sitting across from the tomb watching all of this happened. And then for three days, God is silent. So, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I know some of you, I, I don't know what hopeless moment you're facing today. Um, and those that I, I am aware of, I don't know exactly how you're feeling right this moment. Some of you, I'm sure, can identify with Naomi in Moab. Some of you, I'm sure, feel like Moses, like frustrated at work, right? Feel like Abraham sojourning. Every day you get up, you go to work. Every day you get up, you go to school, and it's just this kind of low-grade anxiety because this is not the place that I belong. These are not my people. I know there's sickness in this room. 
terminal. I know that there's all kinds of sorrow. I mean, we just, we just bear the wounds of living in a world marked by the consequences of sin, right? Of course there's sorrow. You worry about your kids. You worry about your spouse. You worry about your parents. You wonder about the future. You deal with your own remaining sin. And sometimes, if you're anything like me, you just, you just hit these hopeless moments and it feels like God is done working. We've done all we can do and the ground is just cold and hard and barren. John 20, uh, verse 1, says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the clean linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they didn't fully understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Listen, I told you, Peter, James, and John had to wonder, right? They were at the Mount of Transfiguration. They heard the voice from God. But you know what they forgot? The end of the very same account, Jesus says, it is necessary that the Son of Man be delivered over and killed and on the third day rise again. He told them that right after the Mount of Transfiguration. So here comes John and here comes Peter and John stoops and looks in the tomb and he sees that the body is gone and Peter just goes in and starts throwing stuff around and he sees and it dawns on them they begin to understand. So we've come to church, and it's Easter. And we're like, oh my gosh, I've heard dozens of Easter sermons. Why is, why is James wearing that? What is, are we doing that now? I was going to wear shorts, but Lisa and the girls let me know that I just need us to know one thing. The empty tomb is declaring to you right now, to you right now, that God is not done working. In your life, you want to tell me about your trouble? Tell me, tell me about your cancer. Tell me about your finances. Tell me about your arthritis. Tell me about your MS. People attacking you at work, laughing at you at school. Tell me about your anxiety and depression. Tell me about your addiction, your mental illness. Tell me about your broken marriage. Tell me about your kids losing their minds. Or you, you know what? You can tell me about your loss. Tell me about your, your wife who 
was your best friend? Or your husband, who was your best friend? And now they're dead and gone. Your mom and dad. Our parents are the only things that precede us in death, right? Once they're gone, that's it. You like, you step up to that precipice, you're next. And it hurts your heart. Tell me about your mom, dad. Tell me about your son. This is the worst thing. To lose a son or a daughter. No, no mom or dad should have to bury their child. But so many of us have. Maybe you lost a friend that you think you can't live without. Tell me about your hopelessness. Tell me about your fearfulness. Tell me about your shame. Tell me about your guilt. I will tell you about Jesus. He rose from the grave because God isn't done working. He rose from the dead because God is not the God of the dead, but the living. He rose from the dead because the grave couldn't keep him. He rose from the dead because he had defeated sin. So look right at me. Like he defeated pornography. He defeated addiction. He defeated alcohol, adultery, murder, robbery, coveting, envy, all your lies, all of your sneaking around, all of your selfishness, all of your anger, your slandering, your bragging, your pride, your fear-driven decisions, your grumbling and complaining. He defeated it all. He rose from the dead because God isn't done working. God isn't, look at me, he's not done. He's not done rescuing you from your bad decisions. He's not finished. He hung on the cross 2,000 years ago knowing precisely what you were going to do, not only this morning, but tomorrow. Look, eyes, look at my eyes. God is not in love with a future version of you. He loves you right now. And the empty tomb proves it. He rose from the dead because God isn't done rescuing you from your stupidity, your ignorance, your unbelief, your knee-jerk reactions, for laughing when God said Sarah would have a baby, for doubting when God said to offer up Isaac, for bragging when God elevated Joseph in his own dreams. Like, come on, homie, you brought that on yourself, that whole getting thrown in the pit thing. I would have done it too for not speaking up when Reuben knew that they shouldn't throw Joseph into the pit, for blaming Moses when things got harder, for doubting God on the shores of the Red Sea, for grumbling instead of trusting that the God who got you through the sea would provide, for smacking the rock twice instead of speaking to it once, for failing to take the land because we're afraid of giants. Oh, that's us. Oh, that's us. Yeah. For running after Saul instead of trusting God. For sleeping around when God gives you the kingdom. For murdering when Bathsheba's husband's about to catch you. For counting the people. For running after idols. For forsaking the commandments. For ignoring the promises. For questioning Jesus instead of listening to him. For coming up with a bunch of laws instead of just obeying God. For lying about Jesus instead of trusting him. For denying Jesus instead of defending him. For blindfolding him and beating him instead of blessing him. For mocking him instead of marveling at him. What did he pray for those people on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loves you right now. 
for weeping as those who have no hope, for running from the cross instead of standing there and demanding one of your own. He loves you. He's still working. I need you to know, and this is all we can know right now, the grave is empty because God's not done working in your life. When you finally lay your head down for the last time and life ebbs away, everyone who trusts this man, Jesus Christ, will be ushered from this life of difficulty and darkness and doubt and pain and suffering and sorrow. You will be ushered because you have faith in Jesus Christ from this life into the presence of the God who made you for fellowship with him. And that fellowship will never end. But everybody who denies, who refuses, who won't trust, who won't believe, you will be ushered out of the presence of God for all eternity. And you may think, you may think, that's what I want. I don't care. But I'm telling you, God knows what he made you for. You were made for fellowship with him. The last thing any human being wants to experience is a place where God isn't. It almost doesn't matter if it's a lake of fire or just a black hole of isolation. It will be torment for your soul, the likes of which you cannot imagine, and it will be forever. I wish you would trust him. Everyone who trusts him will rise again with him. And whatever's going on in your life right this minute today, I want you to just think. The empty tomb means there's hope for me. That God will still hear my prayers. That God still loves me. Confess and turn away from your sin and he will cleanse you. And you'll walk with him for the rest of your life and into the life to come. So <clears throat> we have these elements, right? We've got the bread and the cup. And the reason that we do this is because Jesus commanded it. He said, I want you to do this, and as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Few obvious reasons there. We're forgetful people, right? We need to remember Jesus, and we need to be reminded of Jesus. So we engage as a church in this practice of observing the Lord's Supper. Some people call it communion. That's okay. It's one of two sacraments, I believe, that God gives as a means of grace for the church corporately. One is baptism, the other is Lord's Supper. What we want you to do is, I'm going to just kick on some music to cover the sound of, you know, sniffling and coughing and shuffling feet and burping. And we want you to just sit for a minute and consider your relationship with Jesus Christ. however long you want to sit. Like, there's an hour's worth of music queued up. I think we usually knock this down in about six minutes. If we went a little longer, it wouldn't hurt my heart. But I understand some of you have a ham to get to. Think about what it means that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is now, even now, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf, making it so that God's not done with you. And then come, preferably, we want you to come as a family unit if you can, 
Um, we want to give men an opportunity to be a priest in the home, to hand out and pray for the elements. The bread is there to represent the body of Jesus, which was broken to pay the penalty for our sin. The cup is there to represent the blood of Christ, which was shed to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we take and we eat and we take and we drink because we understand and believe that it's not enough just to mentally comprehend and intellectually apprehend Jesus Christ. What we want is we want him to dwell within us. We don't believe this is actually his flesh and blood, but it represents the fact that God, because of the resurrection, has declared to us that he will dwell with mankind. He will indwell mankind through the Holy Spirit. So take and eat and take and drink and remember what Jesus has done for you. If you don't have a family here, if you're just kind of like by yourself and uh, you're not sure what to do, don't be nervous. And don't, you don't have to skip it just because you don't have a man here. Like just join somebody else. Nobody in this church that's a member here is going to refuse you if you just invite yourself into their family. But there are five elders here that would especially be more than happy to receive you. That's me. That's Matt Perry. Rick, and then Cecil, and then Lee, right over there. So if you want to join with one of us, you're more than welcome to. Um, if you want to take it by yourself, that's okay too. But don't leave your family hanging, all right? So let me pray. I'll put on some music and we'll get started.